0: You wish upon a star Now we want you to share with us our latest and greatest dream Disneyland Just go to Action Park, there's no other park like it Six Flags Great Adventure, it's not a world away Paramount's Kings Island We will officially open Universal Studios Florida Hello, I'm Michael Eisner
1: Well, here is your host. Hi and welcome back to the Defunctland podcast. Today we are having a very, 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 very special episode because I am joined by a former Imagineer, um, Rick Rothschild, and I can't wait to get to this interview. Um, I'm really excited. Um, I'm not going to go over everything that uh, that you've done, Rick, because I want, I want to hear it straight from you, but uh, I know that those listening that are interested, especially in defunct rides, are going to have um, a pretty great time listening to this interview in particular. So, Rick, thank you so much for being here.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for uh, having me.
1: Um, and so, how? Uh, just to get started, how many years were you at
0: Imagineering? Um, I was there full-time for 31 years. Um, I started in 1978, and I took uh, what was a, I guess called early retirement in the spring of 2009. Um, and I've, subsequent to that, worked on eight or nine attractions, Disney attractions, um, through my company that I formed. Um, that's basically just, uh, myself. Um, and I've also done a number of attractions outside of Disney since 2009.
1: <clears throat> yeah. And that's a, that's a practice that I've heard that other Imagineers do. I mean, you, you, you semi-retire, but then you become a contractor and you're still, you're still working with the company, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, they have their rules and regulations and all that kind of stuff, uh, depending on when people have left and so forth. But quite often, a number of people um, uh, are asked to come back um, because obviously we um, possess certain knowledge and certain skills. And also um, within the context of a number of people that are still there, um, we've worked with a lot of people that are still there. And so it, it works for us. Uh, those that are no longer full-time employees to come back and have fun doing the real work, which is creating more attractions.
1: And so let's, uh, if you don't mind, let's start at kind of the beginning, um, which I always find the most fascinating whenever, um, whenever I do have the chance to interview anyone that's worked with Disney, especially Imagineering. Um, how did you get into it? You know, take me through Were you, were you just interested in um, Disneyland as a kid? Uh, hmm. How did that all start?
0: Yeah. Well, um It started, I guess, in part because I'm a Californian, native Californian, Um, grew up in Southern California, uh, was alive when Disneyland first opened and old enough to go to it within its first year. Um, And even though back in those days it was a, I don't know, three and a half hour trek across uh, Southern California with the freeways not being what they are today, it probably would take longer now. (laughs) <laughs> um, but, um, uh, so I, you know, obviously went to Disneyland and, um, uh, it's worth noting too, that I was, as a kid, I didn't, uh, my parents, I was the only child. I grew up in, in uh, ranch country in Southern California, nearest neighbor, a mile and a half away. And one of the key features of my early life was that we didn't have a television. Um, so I um, got to watch the Mickey Mouse Club on occasion when I was visiting relatives on the East Coast in the summer um, and obviously went to Disney films on very um, occasional uh, times. But really, um, it wasn't until connecting with Disneyland that I had my real first um, experience with with Disney beyond the films and um, I became... Infatuated from the time I was a little guy um, when I first went there. And um, so, jump ahead. Uh, my career um, as I went in through uh, to college was focused on uh, psychology, but I always had an interest in theater in high school, and I took it up when I got to college and ultimately got a degree in um, theater design um, and actually. In the process of all of that, dropped out of college for a while, worked professionally up in Minneapolis, found out that I really did like um, working in the theater and working in the arts, and went back, finished my degree, and then went on from there. One thing led to another. Um, I, along the way, was aware of Disney, um, was aware not of Imagineering in those days, because in those days it was referred to as WED, WED, Enterprises, um, but that there was this place that um, created the attractions for Disney. And what really connected me with that was when I was actually before I went to college, when I was 14, I guess, um, 13, 14, I went to New York uh, summer of 64 um, to visit uh, some of my mom's family and with express purpose to visit the World's Fair. And obviously, as most everyone knows, the number of attractions that were there uh, that Disney had had a hand in. were some of the ones that were extraordinarily memorable to me, inclusive of seeing Mr. Lincoln and the Ford Pavilion and the Carousel of Progress. And so that was the spark, I think, that really got me intrigued with Disney um, and the animatronics specifically. And there, that's sort of an important note when I come back to it later and answering your question. So I went on out of college, um, worked in theater, ultimately came back to L.A., um, and was working for a variety of designers and uh, in the Los Angeles area doing television, film, different things. And I always had an interest in trying to see if I could find my way to working at Disney and, and ended up, as many people back in those days, um, um, I think, collected their um, letters of rejection from applying. So I went on with my career, and then <clears throat> in um, 70, what had it been? Um, five, I guess, summer of 75, I finished a project um, and working with some um, vendors, um, they were uh, discussing with me what I was going to do as the project was completing. And as we were talking, they said, you know, you should really work at um, Disney. And I said, oh, yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, That won't happen. And they said, no, 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 we know somebody there. We'll make sure that you get an interview there or at least connect up with this person. So summer of of uh oh gosh um let's see 78 i guess um so was um when i was uh contacted a a fellow there that they'd forwarded on me on to and um i interviewed with him in the summer of 78 and he said um i'd hire you today but i can't because we're not hiring anybody till we announce which we will be doing in um, October, on October 1st, 1978, we're going to announce that we're going to go ahead and build Epcot. So he said, if you can wait till then, I promise you a a job. So I said, well, that's great. So literally the 2nd of October, I received a phone call from this gentleman and he said, you're ready to start to work. And I started to work there in December of 1978. So I was one of the early hires um, that became ultimately known as the Epcot babies, of which there were Several thousand, I think, um, that got hired as the company grew from about 400 or a little under 400 people when I first started there to over 3,000 um, in the process of doing Epcot and Tokyo Disney Land um, over the next four years. So that's how I ended up at Disney, um, and then a real short little piece on sort of how I ended up doing what most of my career at Disney involved as I. I was hired into the production side of things there, and specifically in those days, there were some core uh, departments that were grouped uh, together, um, kindred spirits, if you will. And in this case, they were the audio, the video, um, the special effects and lighting teams, as well as the show programming and, and figure animation programming group. And so I was hired as their coordinator um, basically to help those five departments get themselves organized um, and ready to do Epcot. So I did that for about a year and I I guess I was quite successful because I pretty much had gotten all of what I needed to be doing done and in that first year and I was scratching my head a little bit as the company was going like crazy and everything was headed into production for Epcot. And um, I was connected to um, with, with one of who was one of my early mentors there with Rogers, who was uh, an animator, a figure animator and came out of the studios and um, uh, was, was uh, always sort of looking out for me. And, and he said, I think you need to go talk to a fellow there. My name is Randy Bright up in the creative group. So I talked to him and in, in December, I guess, of 79. And he offered me a job to basically act as his assistant as he was taking on an expanded role um, overseeing all the script development for all of the UpGut shows, and said, I need somebody to work with me. Uh, and I'd gotten to know him a little bit, and he me as well, but he said, I, I can't really give you a job description, but I, I know that I'm going to need somebody around that can sort of help out with a variety of things. So I said, well, gee, I need to think about that. <laughs> and actually, I took a weekend and went, what a great opportunity. Somebody's offered me a job with no job description. Um <laughs> So um, I went back that Monday morning and said, let's, let's get started. I'd love to do that. So um, Randy worked directly for Marty Scholar, um, who at the time was in um, a, not the, the full head of Imagineering, but he was certainly the head of the creative side of imaginary at that time. And um, I had gotten to know Marty a little bit. And so that began the, the, the long-time relationship I had with Marty Started as a mentor and ultimately became a very good friend um, um, after being a colleague for many years. Sadly, no longer with us. But um, through Marty and Randy um, and the opportunities that I started to work on there and the creative side of things, Randy had um, one show at Epcot that he had developed the original concept for, and then developed the fifth concept for over many years up through 1978, and that was the American Adventure. And so I got to, I was obviously by then, having been in the company for more than a year, I was quite familiar with all of the attractions at Epcot, and in that particular case, that particular attraction. And it quite interested me because it was a theatrical presentation, and my background was theater and so forth. So I started doing more and more work um for randy on that project um and working with the production teams and ultimately what that led to was he was not able to do really sort of function as a day-to-day uh creative lead on that project because he had all this other responsibility so the project really needed it didn't need art direction it had plenty of that but it did need um a creative lead and um that began um, my career, really, uh, when Marty and, and Randy recognized um, listening to some of the key team members that the team really needed somebody like that. And I always viewed it as basically what in a theater, which I, where I'd really come from and even some in film, the person who's a director. It doesn't mean that you're the art director. It doesn't mean you're the cinematographer. It doesn't mean you're the actor. And it doesn't mean you're the writer. But it is a person who... Um, takes and and make sure that everything ultimately comes together in a cohesive delivered story um, in the form that you're that you're uh, producing it in and in this case it was the american adventure in that theater down there and at Upcut. so it was decided um i guess six seven months after i would started working for randy that that project really needed that kind of a position and it was a new position because um, in the past, um, and quite often still, um, many projects at Disney, because they're so visually involved, tend to have an art director at the, f- at the front end leading them, and quite often is the one who creatively leads the project all the way to the end. But in this case, because the project had so much technology and so much sophistication of putting all of that together that was far beyond just an art direction task, um, it needed somebody to help much more like a theatrical director or a film director and so that role um, um, I took on and it didn't exist at Disney um, before me um, Marty actually invented a name we talked about what I thought it should be called and it was pretty obvious to me that it was the show director and he said oh that'll confuse people director will confuse people because of the art director connection with what we do here at Imagineering. And so let's call you something else. Let's call you a show producer. So I became the first show producer at Imagineering. And for a number of years while I was doing my work, I was quietly convincing them that I was a show director. But the idea of sort of an overall creative director that doesn't have to be necessarily somebody who is an illustrator or or an artist um, in that sense, um, to lead the project is what I started to do. So ultimately over my career, for most of it, um, the title was changed somewhere five or six years uh, after Epcot opened as a show director and I was I was a um, executive, became an executive there um, shortly after Epcot opened in 82. Um, and um, that's what I went on to do was basically, help develop shows in many cases and function as more of a producer. And then ultimately my real skill and still sort of the focus of what I like to do and what I'm good at and what people hire me to do is, um, is show directing and this sort of integration of all of the show elements into a cohesive, um, story event or experience for guests, depending on whether it's a ride or it's a, uh, a theater show or whatever it may be. So that's how I sort of started there, how I became what I, um, for the most part of my professional life, ended up doing, and what I still do. Um, And along the way, obviously, did many, many, I think I did somewhere um, between 40 plus shows for Disney. Um, In some cases, those were implementing um, the same show in another location, but I think probably close to at least uh, 18 to 20 unique different shows, if not more than that, and 40 to 50 now that I've done in terms of taking shows into the field and bringing them up out of the ground and becoming the attractions that people see all over the world.
1: And that's it's so interesting that you are able to, you know, join Imagineering at, at what I would consider, you know, what what, as we know, Imagineering today, I mean, you know, we have you know wet enterprises we have that era of you know building the magic kingdom which you know they already built disneyland but you're building epcot which is the first different park i mean a lot of Mm -hmm. creative minds right a lot of creative force to make something completely new without you know walt for the first time in the parks i should say um right and so i mean just completely uh and so you also you also become and i and i do want to follow the linear storyline of just just to uh To make it easier, but I don't want to jump too far ahead. But you you did all Mm -hmm. also become the unofficial kind of father of 4D experiences,
0: isn't that Mm -hmm. right? And so you yeah well right. So go ahead. Well, I was going to say the the success of of Epcot for me at least um, my principal attraction there. I had some other secondary things that I was helping out with, but my principal focus and my everyday job for over two years was, was realizing the American adventure. And so after that was over, um, for a short time there, while well, Imagineering was trying to figure out what it was going to do. Cause once we'd opened Tokyo, there wasn't much to do. And there were huge layoffs and the company got very small again and so forth. And Marty, um, ha- at that point asked me to consider, um, starting to look at, um, Entertainment in the box in, in urban environments—something that Walt and some of the early Imagineers had played around with—and that sort of the time was there to sort of look at that again. And knowing my background, um, so I started to do that, which in the long term led to Pleasure Island, which we can come back and talk about. But uh, at the same time, um, come 1985, um, out of the doldrums um, came michael eisner and frank wells and suddenly the the next 10 years which were the good 10 years <laughs> of, <laughs> of of them being around and particularly because frank was alive through all of that first 10 years um uh, a tremendous energy and revitalization in the company that everybody knows about and so one of the first things that i was asked to to um do after michael and frank arrived the summer of 85 i guess I was asked to um, consider um, what what the following three things put together might produce as an attraction. And the three things that I was given was Michael Jackson, George Lucas, and 3D. And, um, and oh, by the way, you have a week. Um, so I pulled together a, a small group, as is tradition in the company, of of great minds um they were quite a collection actually um um, some most all of them are are known or rather well known one was joe rody who was a good uh, friend back in those days and a young artist Um, tim kirk um richard vaughn um was uh, the third um and along with a few other people but those the four of us were the sort of core of it and in a week we put together three different concepts and one of them was called the Intergalactic Music Man, which obviously you can sense became Captain Eo. Mm-hmm. Um, so we pitched it, um, pitched all three of the ideas. If you, if you don't um, mind, what, what were the other two? Yeah, well one right. it was all really sort of looking at to start with you know, and it was in the days of early rock videos and Michael's own work and so forth. and looking at what Michael's connection with Disney was, um, it was a bit of fodder for us. So, and we had George Lucas and so forth. So the intergalactic music man was probably of the three, the strongest George Lucas connection, cause it was set in space and, and sort of played off of that. Um, the, the second one was taking m- the, the known, um, interest that Michael had in Peter Pan and looking at some kind of a similar kind of Pan like character, um, all three of the, well, those two, that one and and what became Captain EO had similar storylines in terms of, of, of a guy and a, and a small group that band of, of, uh, merry men, if you will, that travel with him and, um, that they bring, um, uh, life and, and, um, uh, you know, good, good things to an environment and to a culture and, in a situation that's quite dark and needs needs uh, release, and so um, the second one was more of a of a and kind of tale set in a more fantastic way with an ice queen and a bunch of other stuff, and then the third one was really playing off of My- Michael's interest in Peter, Pan- I mean, in um, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, which obviously we knew that he loved to go down there late at night and one of his rides that he loved to go on was Pirates. So we came up with a whole idea, um, long well before Johnny Depp, but uh, sort of a whole <laughs> idea that that took place with with that kind of a thing where Michael um, wanders into Pirates of the Caribbean and gets lost in a whole pirate's tale. So, clearly the the one of the, th- the, the three that we liked the most and that everybody else liked the most was the Intergalactic Music Man. It tended to put everything together. It had Lucas, it had Michael, it had characters and all the rest of that stuff. And um, so we pitched it to, obviously, internally, and then it very quickly, Lucas and George liked it, so then we pitched it to Michael. And my final sort of summary line to him when we pitched the the short storyboards that we had and the the basic ideas that I, as I was saying it, I didn't realize what I was saying, but I did after I'd said it, I I summarized the whole thing of that you're bringing color to a colorless world. Um, and, (laughs) and he smiled and his eyes twinkled. And, um, so he liked the idea as well. So that launched that whole, um, I guess it was about 14 months. Um, very fast for Disney, incredibly fast. Um, but from making movies and so forth, not necessarily as fast. Exceedingly ambitious project um, and expensive to do. Captain EO. Well, it was expensive. Part of it was was you know the the individuals involved, not just Michael, but you had Francis Coppola and, and uh, a number of other. You know, John Napier was brought in to do costumes, and ultimately, it was actually an interesting side story because the whole notion of enhancing the 3D experience, which was was discussed but wasn't part of the original. I mean, when we first did it, it was, what do you do with a 3D attraction with Michael and George Lucas? But as we started getting further into it, Imagineering, um, John Napier spent a lot of time um, at Imagineering when he found out there was an Imagineering, because as a designer, he goes, I really like what you guys do over here. I want to learn more about that, spend more time with you guys. And it was in working and talking with him early on and his, um, being a scenic designer, he was brought in to do costume design because he'd done Cats and he'd done, uh, I think Starlight Express actually was the big um, musical, Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, that Michael Jackson liked the costumes for. So John was hired for that. But John was really interested in, uh, with us, in how to break the, the 3D barrier. And so that's what led to the, to the beginnings of what ultimately became 4D, 5D, whatever anybody calls it today where, you know, things other than just a 3D movie are put together effects and lighting and so forth to, to enhance that experience. And um, so um, part of it was that. Part of it was we, were we, I think, right now, Disney is about to open simultaneously um, for the first time since Captain EO, um, a very ambitious project with um, the Star Wars um, lands where they're anticipating opening the two of them simultaneously at Disneyland and Walt Disney World. I believe that, I know for a fact that Captain EO was the first time that had ever been done, where we simultaneously, day for day, opened both attractions um, at Walt Disney World and at Disneyland. And I don't think we've done that again um, until what they're doing now with the very ambitious uh, Star Wars project. Um, So that was... Part of it, too, was that we were building two theaters. They were both, one was a retrofitting, one at Epcot. The other was retrofitting an old outdoor stager in front of Magic Mountain, or in front of Space Mountain. And um, so there was a a lot of reason why it was expensive, let's put it that way. And the biggest reason, when you look back on it historically, is what was accomplished um, in that 20-minute film in terms of special effects, when there was no such thing as CGI. Mm-hmm. There was nothing. Right. Every bit of the 3D effect work that was done in that movie was hand animated, or it was, in some cases, a little bit of stop motion um, for certain things. But a vast amount of all of the very um, uh, you know beautiful um, last six minutes of the movie Where Michael's magic starts to really take over, um, was all done with about 250 animators, uh, hold up at a facility out in the San Fernando Valley, um, doing every frame (laughs) of, of those, of that effect work in, in uh, by hand. But as I say, also in 3D, which in those days, there wasn't a lot of, nobody had really been doing any 3D work. And so, the idea of doing effects work in 3D um, in itself was a challenge. So, you put all that together and yeah, it was expensive. Um, it also made the company probably a lot of, a lot of money and it also um, was exceedingly popular well beyond what everybody thought. I think, um, I know that internal to Disney, there was a sense that, you know, if they could get three great years out of this, they didn't view this as a permanent attraction. They viewed it as an opportunity to bring great entertainment to people but that eventually you know michael would evolve and as an artist and do other kinds of things and other things would come into the park and so forth and the fact that it played almost nine years in the parks and we put it ultimately in japan and in europe as well um where it lasted like i say about nine years and then we ultimately sadly as a result of michael's passing brought it back I um and able to enhance it with the motion floors that we had in place by then for the honey attractions. So um it ended up, I guess, getting what, thirteen, fourteen years of life out of uh, something that the company made an investment in and, and truly made an investment thinking it would be two to three years. So
1: Yeah, and the uh well, a couple of things on that before you know we move on past Captain EO, but I remember doing my video, I, I just listed Um, So many different people that worked on this project um, and just, you know, so many huge names they brought in. It was truly, you know, a a piece of its time um, of just how Mm -hmm. many people worked on it. And also, um, I think I did emphasize how expensive it is because that's one of the main talking points, especially now. But something I didn't I haven't truly considered until just now actually is how probably small its operating cost is compared to other attractions with animatronics and much oh, yeah. larger electrical systems. So, I mean, yeah, I mean as far as investments go, it was probably good. It's just that that enough I don't I forget what it was, million, 20 million, something something ginormous for, you know, 1985, 86, right? Well,
0: and we were we were like I said we were we were doing the two theaters. Right. Um, yeah. And I was spending I was spending generally um two weeks a month here and two weeks a month in Florida. And as we were doing it, the effects work was evolving on the film side of things, and also we were evolving effects in the theater, and, and evolving how those two things work together. So there was there 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 was a constant um, uh, interest, I guess, in making sure that it got pushed over the top. So. I mean, the number of of uh, in theater effects, for example, that we put out in front and got approved initially, probably ten months before you know we opened. Um, we added a, 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 a several more, probably four months before we opened. So um, it 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 was it, it's it took, it took its own life uh, and had its own life, if you will um as people were seeing what was happening, everybody were becoming more and more enthused with what it was like and just making sure that it could be everything it could be. And Michael and Jeffrey obviously were as equally focused on that as, and that's Michael Eisner as Michael Jackson was. So um yeah. <laughs> too many Michaels. The
1: um there are too many Michaels, no. <laughs> um so and so moving on past Captain Neo, and I I I could talk mm. about any one of these specific attractions all day. But the uh you know, Captain EO, you move on. And then later in nineteen eighties, is this when you're assigned to you said Pleasure Island?
0: Yeah, well Pleasure Island, like I say, it it, it started um before Michael and Frank came to Imagineering. Um as I mentioned, my, Marty had asked me to take a small group um in this sort of idle time uh after the two big um openings of Epcot and Tokyo and just sort of look at what we might do. So when Eisner and Wells came, um, one of the other things they did is they visited the parks, and particularly visited all visited Walt Disney World. Is they said, "God, there's no nighttime entertainment at Walt Disney World, really. It's crazy. It's like people people come home from uh, you know, the parks, and uh, at different times, some of them obviously don't stay there all the way to the final fireworks and want to do other things and." and there's nothing to do you can have dinner and then what so they started pushing uh for almost immediately on the after their early trips down there um for developing something and initially back in those days there was a part of the company called disney development corporation it was a land development they were the ones that ultimately produced celebration and um had a lot of influence in the company uh, on development of the property particularly Walt Disney World and so they were given the charter by Eisner um, to come up with a do something with the village back in those days was the Buena Vista Village um, complex which was a quiet little place that had Captain Jack's which was a little bar and an oyster rest uh, bar. for and before and, uh, Johnny Depp, right long long before <laughs> yeah and uh, yeah that's right that's true and it was called captain jack's <laughs> um, and um, so anyways so uh again one of those kind of situations where where everybody had imaginary we we're all scratching our heads like well why didn't they ask us to get involved but oh well politics um so apparently uh, Michael had a review of the concept that That his development team had put together and they'd gone around and done diligence, sort of, and said, Okay, well we can get, you know, and I'm making this up because I don't remember what the particular companies were, but it's like, okay, we'll get we'll put a cheesecake factory there and we'll put a there was a dance club out of Dallas called Confetti. And so they were going around and, you know, picking picking pearls and putting them there. And Michael went, wait a minute, we're Disney. Why are we doing that? Have the imagineering guys look at it. So, um, this was probably 80, 87, uh, a couple of years before it opened in 89. Um, so, when that happened, um, Marty asked me to head up a group um, that um, ultimately we began to develop these ideas and um, For what ultimately became Pleasure Island, um, obviously we were successful in our first conceptual pitches, and um, so as it got launched into really it was going to happen. I said we, we need to, we, we can't. I don't think we can do the project properly if we do it all with in-house talent. Um, I said I think we need. It, it's a special kind of thing. It's a hybrid, if you will. Back in those days, certainly from beyond just theme park attractions. It needs to have a little bit of an edge, but it's still got to be Disney. It's got to be adult, but it's still got to be something we can take our kids to. And, and you know, a broad spectrum of audience will enjoy it. And so I convinced um, uh, Marty and uh, to allow me to hire uh, a number of people, small number, but a number of people from the outside. So we ultimately put a group together that was about, by design, about 50 percent uh, drawn from within Imagineering at the time, and 50% they had no idea what Imagineering was. In some cases, um, and actually, um, um, through the process, were sometimes going, "Why am I here?" <laughs> and it was like, "Well, you're here because you bring a perspective that we otherwise wouldn't have if we had everybody completely caught up in just being a Disney file." And <laughs> so, I think that was sort of the, uh, the the positive effect was that that tension between people that were more into, you know, creating other kinds of adult experiences and other kinds of experiences than just pure Disney experiences brought together with the right collection of people out of of the Disney group. And so we had, I guess, about 25 of us that were sequestered off in a separate building and started to really develop this thing. And so that's how that happened. Um, and there you go. And and so, what was your exact position on this? Were you a show producer, show director, or was I, it? Were we? I was story the overall. Based? Yeah, I was the overall creative director for the Pleasure Island for the whole idea, and I was partnered with an environmental um, architect um, uh, uh, whose name is Chris Carradine. And so, Chris and I were sort of the. The you know because it it was as much about creating a place and creating architecture uh, as it was about all of what went on inside. So the two of us were creatively the 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 two creative leads on the project Um, and uh, had a lot of fun. A lot of people didn't quite understand how we got on because we we um, we operate very differently. But again, I think that was that tension that I mentioned about. Even crafting the team with you know Disney people and people who weren't pure Disney uh, didn't think Disney. Um, obviously, having somebody like Chris who who thought about the pragmatics and very creatively thought about how to create place and make interesting place um, to function in the way we wanted it to. Um, so, anyways, that's how that. I think that answers your
1: question yeah and i i'm gonna have one more question on pleasure island um yeah. where we get going because we have decades and so mm-hmm. um it's your fault for having such a long and prosperous career so uh, i know you didn't Thank think about God, this I'm podcast
0: <laughs> <laughs> you,
1: know, you know i'm gonna to have to talk mm-hmm. about all this someday on a podcast um so pleasure island has this large as of course you know because you created it this overarching story um and so when you're creating, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. with Merryweather Pleasure, um, mm-hmm. well, first of all, I mean, every time you sent out a plaque that said Pleasure Himself on it, you you
0: knew what that, you, you saw that, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Was- so there's a story about the name. No, there's a story about the okay, name. Okay, good. And it's it's old enough now that we can probably easily talk about it and it's, it's history and it's humorous. Um when we were developing it, obviously, like any project, you have to come up with a name, and um, so we always thought of back in those days, Buena Vista Village um, as sort of the Tijuana border town of Walt Disney World. Um, it was at that time where the only non-Disney hotels were, um, you know, nearby. Um, it was it was on the border. <laughs> <laughs> Close to a freeway or two. Um and um and it had a little bit of a an adult edge to it. Like I say, it had Captain Jackson you could go there and feel a little more adult and not quite Disney. I mean it was well run and so forth, but it didn't have an overlay of Mickey Mouse or anything that was Disney like you would find in uh in the parks. It was it was something different. So um, well as we were going along, it, it rather quickly um, I don't remember how we hit on the name other than it was pretty obvious because that's where Pinocchio went. Um, and it had sort of this simple, symbolic edge within the Disney culture of a place that was a little edgy, right? Mm-hmm. A little less than, you know, not where all the nice boys go, where <laughs> the bad boys go. And um, so it was. it was sort of a working title, but it kept sort of making sense. And as we were um, going along, um, we were also um, looking for a backstory as to why the facility looked the way it looked, the way the little, the little uh, collection of, of buildings, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so we developed this whole history around this fellow, uh, uh, Meriwether Adams Pleasure. And um, there was a writer that we had. <clears throat> he still works in the industry. He's with um, Bob Rogers Group. His name is Rich Proctor. And Rich, very, very funny guy. He wrote um, a lot of the, uh, of the original Comedy Warehouse show. He uh, was one of the three writers on that, uh, key writers. And he was a key writer also on, on some of the Adventurers Club shows that we did. But one of the other things that Rich helped do is he wrote what I refer to as hysterical markers, which were these these history markers that were put eventually all over the island. So as people are wandering around, it looked like we had refurbished this old historical place. And these little markers, if you chose to read them, um, gave you a little bit more history about the building and a little bit more history about some aspect of Murray Adam Adams' pleasure and his wife, Isabella. And um, the great bang master, the Chinese fireworks, um, fellow that he brought from China because he loved fireworks that led to how we ended up doing the fireworks factory, which was the one of the restaurants. And so, I mean, there was this this whole history um, that was free from anything that was Disney. Again, it was its own sort of new Disney um, history. And um, so back to the name. So um, the project was publicly announced at some point, probably a, a year or so before we opened. Um, and, um, somewhere along the line, the company got, um, at the corporate level, got some backlash, um, on the name, um, with some letters written by people, very caring people who said, Hey, why are you creating a place on Disney property called Pleasure Island? So, um, and there's more, more to sort of the background of that, that you might assume, it came from certain people who were, you know, obviously concerned. Um, probably some may have been stockholders, um, um, but there were a lot of just, just common people who, who, and a few, who were vehement in their letters of objection. And I think somebody here or there may have written a letter to an editor here or there in some newspaper and so forth. So anyways, Michael was always conscious of that kind of publicity and and so forth. So here we are in the middle of the project and he goes, we need to reevaluate the name. Okay, so you're the boss. So we brought together. I had groups in in Florida. I had the marketing Disney marketing teams. I had I had people, other people in Florida thinking about this. I had our team rethinking it. We ultimately came up with like uh, must have had three hundred names. And looking through the three hundred names it was like, well, about 150 of them, 50% of them, seemed like they were names you'd put on a retirement community. Um, They were just, yeah, they were just (laughs) obnoxiously bad kinds of, (laughs) and so there were a bunch of that, and then there were, I mean, a number of other different kinds of things. So eventually we sort of sifted through it internally with the core core design team that I had, and we ultimately came down to probably 25 names, And we worked on it some more. And finally I went, I know what we're going to call it. So I had my appointment with Marty and he said, so you got to go back to Michael and tell him what you're going to call it. You got all this stuff. What are you going to do? I said, we're going to call it Pleasure Island. (laughs) And he said, basically, I'm not going with you and you're going to go tell Michael (laughs) that. (laughs) So, so we made our appointment and we went over to the studio and, um, one of the designers and Chris Carradine who I mentioned, uh, uh, uh and myself. And, um, we're by then the, uh, the dwarf building had been built. So we're in Michael's new office. I know maybe it wasn't, maybe we were still in the, in his rebuilt office because I remember we were sitting in, I think it was the rebuilt office before the dwarf building, but they'd taken this area in the old animation building and created sort of the executive area. So we're, Having a meeting, Michael's office, Frank Wells' office is across the hall from Michael's. And so Michael says, so we're here to, what are you going to call it? So I handed him the the whole list of 300 names. And I said, you don't need to read these. Look at the top list. There's the 25. Um, We went through, obviously, a very exhaustive search. And the net result of it is, I think you should still call it Pleasure Island. And he goes, Okay. And he back in those days, there were the the rotary phones and the little push buttons on the phone that executives had so you could auto-dial different offices. So he picks up his phone and he pushes one of those buttons. So it's like, (laughs) who's he calling? Is he calling Frank Wells? Is he calling? And uh, he's got it on speakerphone. And he goes... Uh, the, the, the phone is answered, and I could tell from the voice, even though it was just hello, it was Jeffrey Kassenberg. Oh. And Michael says one word or two words. He goes, Pleasure Island. And there's, like, dead silence. And there's, like, dead silence for what seemed like a really long time. And there's some little mumbling in the background. So, obviously, somebody um, turned out it was was um, Richard, uh, I forget his name, who was the head of the of the production studio, at the studio that was in Katzenberg's office, Richard Frank. And um, so anyway, so there's this mumbling in the background, 90 seconds, and we're all just sitting there, Michael's sitting there. And finally, Jeffrey's voice again, we hate it. Michael (laughs) goes, thank you. And he pushes the button, click, turns to us, to me, and says, call it Pleasure Island. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So... What,
1: what, what, so you hear that? It was like what, what happened earlier today. Is this just a common well, thing? I think
0: I, I think I think that was towards that period of time that we all know about reading books, much later historical books about the early days at Disney and the ongoing days at Disney, where Jeffrey was starting to break away from Michael. They'd done Lion King, they were, but they were having their their little things, and it was it truly was. It was it was like you know, on reflection, it's almost as if. As if at that point, whatever, you know, I mean, clearly Michael used it as a reflection of, of not needing to feel comfortable that Jeffrey said it's good. <laughs> it was almost a, It's was clearly the inverse of that. So, but anyways, <laughs> but that's how it kept its name um, uh, and went on from there. Well, I'm so glad that I
1: fished that story out of you because that was, that's wonderful. Um, I thought Marty Scar was going to answer the phone, but that was a much better twist.
0: <laughs> yeah no. no 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 marty wasn't marty didn't want to be anywhere near that right conversation. <laughs> yeah, well he, marty was the consummate politician so he knew when to be in the room <laughs> and when not to be in the room so, the um
1: well i i do want to keep going on pleasure island but i'm gonna i'm gonna yeah. move on to what happens next like so pleasure island opens in what uh late 80s um 89? Yeah, 89 yeah 89 and so
0: what you know, same time studio tour was getting going
1: Okay, and this is what your next project is.
0: No, the studio tour was going while we were doing. In fact, um, side note, and then I'll move on to answer your question. But, but the the, the newer, um, uh, um, you know, Disney Channel had had come to play, and so we had the uh, the Mickey Mouse Club, the modern day Mickey Mouse Club, which we all know who the original group of modern day right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Going on some to be have illustrious, all of that. <laughs> well, they were young kids doing work down there while we were open, getting ready to open Pleasure Island. So they were, they actually would come over. I had them a couple of times when we were testing things out and stuff. So that was all part of what was going on at that time down there. Cause the studio had started to, to be a facility down there while they were still getting the the park itself open. Um, and uh, so Yeah, those two things somewhat simultaneously. And also um, the third thing at the same time was Typhoon Lagoon. So all of that activity, because that was sort of in the days of Eisner getting all sorts of things going. And um, so for me, um, I had a, um, I guess there was a period of, a short period of time in there where I was um, given some opportunity to look at, um, a couple of projects. Um, I chose not to work on one of them. Um, and, uh, ultimately as a result of that, um, it, it all worked out just fine because, um, I went on, um, to do many other things. So, um, but I had some work during that era or, um, sort of transitional period of time there where we were doing because of Pleasure Island uh, and the success of it, um, there were several of us from that that group that were involved with early development of Euro Disney, um, not the park so much as the area around the park and as the whole sort of development of the hotels and the entertainment district and all that kind of stuff. So we did that for a short period of time. Um, and then um, I guess... Um, I don't remember in what order, but um, we, we started getting into things like um, the Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. Actually did in 92, I did a redo of the of the Golden Dream sequence. So I was working on that in 91, 92 for Epcot for the American Adventure. Um, and we also did a bunch of other stuff on that attraction somewhere in and around that time because Michael loved that attraction and wanted a bunch of upgrades to it. Um, so, but then the, the, the work on, on honey started to go and I've been developing, I've been asked to develop a lot of different sort of 3d concepts. Um, in some cases it was to, you know, what are we going to put in now that Captain EO is waning? Um, and so that ultimately became honey, um, so started working on that, um, and that eventually again went to all four parks. Um, but it was while I was doing, as I mentioned in the beginning of our conversations today, um, the work, uh, the concluding work on the honey project, uh, was in the fall of '95, um, and uh, it was at that time that the alien encounter was under another group of imagineers being implemented, um, uh, up in the magic kingdom. And, um, so as I was finishing, we finished around Thanksgiving time. Um, and I knew that they were doing some test shows with alien. And I knew that from, from what I was hearing, um, things were not going super well that, uh, Michael had seen the test shows and he loved the concept for alien encounter, but he didn't feel like what, the uh, team had created, delivered, um, uh, fully, and so, so but and I,
1: I got to ask: Was the the yeah. the leading rumor at this point is mm. it's not scary mm. enough, or is it that the it? But the other leading theory is that it, the story isn't clear enough. So could could you maybe clarify which one of those it is, if if either?
0: I, I think I think it didn't quite know what it wanted to be, and it had a problem. Um of story and what it had actually was more of a technological problem or an assumption about technology um, that had led them down the path on this attraction that i i mean basically i was asked to go review the show while i was still there um and then i came home in early december and they again it was one of those things where, okay so michael wants an answer by the first of january so What are you going to do and so i worked with uh uh, a couple of people that had obviously been on the project and a writer mike west who had been on the project um and a few people that hadn't been um, just to get some fresh brain around me and um but but going into our work i came away with the following summary (laughs) and it was number one, it was a binaural show back in those days um, meant to be mostly delivered in the dark uh, with binaural being the, the delivery. And I think as experiments have shown, because they did a, a binaural show at the studio, they did a binaural show years ago at Disneyland, at least with Mr. Lincoln, depending on what the subject is, you can, you can make that work. But when you're trying to tell a long story, and you can do it for short periods of time, um, my summary, and maybe this comes from my childhood um, and some of the freakish weird things that all kids do, if you, we, we all know that if you lock more than one person, a you know, young person, into a closet, <laughs> close the door, and turn the lights off, you'll start to scream. It's just a natural kind of thing that happens. And that's basically what was happening with this show is that they had a very, very long segment where, you know, they, they had uh, sort of leading up to why the lights go out and then you're in the dark and the majority of the show was all in the dark and binaural. And it was like, the audience is just, they would start to scream and suddenly nobody was hearing anything. They were just hearing each other screaming. It literally was a crowd losing control and no way to bring them back. So that was number one, I think, one of the fundamental pieces. And then the second thing was um, how, to, how to tell some, uh, 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 create a story that has humor, but fundamentally you are putting people in the dark and you're telling a dark story and everybody still wanted to do that. So it was like, well, then let's do that. So, um, so my basic summary was, okay, let's make it really scary and let's find ways to let the audience get lost in the scary scariness, but at the same time, find more ways to get control and lead them on more of the journey, um, where at least we control the story rather than they taking over and just screaming a lot. So, That required a major rework of the whole story, which we accomplished um, through the holidays and pitched um, a reworking of the story to Michael in early January. And we were cut loose and we were given six months to redo the show, Um, which was a ton of fun um, because a number of the people that had worked on it who obviously wanted it to be successful um, stayed around. There were a few people that were like i've had enough of this i don't want any more to do with it and they left um, which i respect and and was probably good for them and for us and then we brought in a whole crew of fresh new people and um, at that time brand farron had come into the company uh, was heading the r d group and had brought in a bunch of really great technical people so we made use of his team and we basically went back and did this thing like a piece of theater because it was Um, And so it was uh, a large number of people doing a horrendous amount of work in a very short period of time, which means everybody got out of our way (laughs) Um, because we basically, I took Michael through a, a, you know, re-storyboarding of the the show that was very detailed. And he goes, yep, let's go do that. That's great. And so it was like, all right, then the agreement is stand back, everybody, and let this group go do it. And they did. And so, you know, I mean, we rebuilt the figures. We did all sorts of stuff with adding, um, you know, uh, the whole live actor, which was a big operational headache for people, but was a way to help get control back into that room and still keep the story going and actually adds to the story. Um, still made use of the binaural stuff. We added other things, other physical things to the chair. I mean, we, literally tore apart and restructured and rebuilt the entire show. The pre-show was completely redone um, with the same basic character. There was uh, the robotic Sir character um, who was renamed Sir um, for the purpose of our sort of retelling of the show. A lot of the footage that had been made for the pre-show um, where it talked about excess and, and the corporation and set up the chairman and all that. We stayed with all of that because it was great production value. I just saw Tyra Banks last night again on some show. It's like, wow, there she is. She was our our spokesperson for XS. Um, and but we repurposed the figure uh, in the pre-show, the little skippy character, the whole, Transportational the way, the story, him getting fried, all that kind of stuff it was all this kind of stuff that started to make it a little bit. It was funny, but it was dark, um, and um, so that ultimately was, I guess, you know, um, the, the the right show in the wrong park because um, the show. I think everybody that went to it of a certain age. Obviously, the problem from the beginning was this show was in Tomorrowland in Magic Kingdom, where the expectation is that you know um, there the younger people uh, um, have a lot of opportunities to go do things there, and this show probably would have done better had it been at Studio Tour. Um, in terms of serving the audience a little bit better um, and with an expectation of what it was, but it certainly was exceedingly popular amongst a certain generation uh, of teenagers and young adults. Absolutely. So, I mean, I, again, as I, as I mentioned,
1: you know, before the podcast, this is the attraction that, I mean, everyone, even those that haven't, you know, been on it. It's just like, that's the, that's the, premier defunct attraction because it's so unique and different and outside of the norm which i think is what makes it so memorable but i do agree and i've said this you know many times on podcasts and the similar assessment of you know it just it wasn't right for the magic kingdom it's just it's a different um no it's a different vibe. it was pleasure
0: island it was pleasure <laughs> island in the magic kingdom yeah. you want to think of it that way it was a little it, you know it was still very disney it right. was nothing that crossed i don't think any line but it it did scare the, the Jesus out of people, <laughs> and I um, and which I, was think I that, figured if I'm gonna, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I, I was just gonna say I, 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 that was sort of my thing is if we're gonna do this, let's have fun, but really scare people, and you know. Um, so, anyways, and I and I, what I was gonna say is, I, yeah, I I think that if it wasn't studios,
1: that it would have, it might still be there, <laughs> just based off of the the track uh-huh. record that park has with. Uh, keeping attractions and you know actually you know building new ones but the um but yeah so it's just it was also another reason i think
0: of course it's just prime real estate um in in the magic kingdom there's something else i was thinking about today in regards to something very different but it's the same point i'm about to make which is um when there's an ip from a movie and somebody hands it to you and says here take this precious ip and deliver a meaningful attraction in the park that sustains that IP. That's a different assignment than here's a blank slate, make an attraction. Right. And um, you know, whether it's and I've had conversations with a number of imagineers, Joe rody is a very good friend over the years and and comes to mind as one where he's very much, I mean, it's like Animal Kingdom was You know not a zoo it was i mean it was something new it was something fresh yes it ultimately had some disney ip in it but it also developed a lot of its own ip um around the theme of the animal kingdom whether it's you know tough to be a bug um or whatever um um, and i think that in some ways for those of us who started with imagineering back in the epcot days All the shows at Epcot were ultimately, um, yes, they involved in many cases bits and pieces of Disney iconography or Disney character. But in a lot of cases, a lot of new stuff, whether it's figment or it's, you know, the story of energy or the American adventure, a history show. Um, It was it was an opportunity as as all of us um, creatively to tell a story and create the story and not simply have to retell or work within the structure of um, the preexisting IP. And I think personally, the balance of those two. I mean, if you look at Walt Disney, I mean, a *Pirates of the Caribbean* originally was that—it was all new, completely no movie about it or anything else—and yet there was *Peter Pan* the ride, and there was *Snow White* the ride. So it was a bit of both, and I think that balance of of both is what all of us who worked, you know, through the 70, late '70s up into the, uh, the, you know, at least the beginning of 2000s. Um, had a lot of opportunity to create a lot of shows where the IP or the story was unique and wasn't built around a pre existing television show or a pre existing movie. Um, so, and I think that's the way you get some, because it, it, it's, it, you can, you could succeed probably at doing um, a show similar to Alien with uh, the right IP, but we didn't have to worry about. The rules of the IP. We could create our own rules for the universe, uh, the story universe we were in, and tell the perfect story to make the attraction work the best and not be constrained by anything that came from a movie or came from a television show. So, in some ways, I think that's that. uh, And a lot of the shows that I've done over the years actually are more those kinds of shows. I've also, you know. Um, fortunately worked with pixar a couple of times with the nemo universe and i love that universe and and so i'm not being critical or saying i don't as a, a creative artist like to work with um pre-existing ip but it is really a freeing experience and i think that goes back to part of the success of alien was it was its own thing on its own terms
1: absolutely uh, and, I, and i agree with your your sentiment that if you're going, if you're going to have IP and you're going to have original attractions, just that balance, and that's what we're that you know I talk about it a ton. We're not we're getting we're seeing less and less of that. I mean, and it just mm-hmm. it makes sense given the climate of Disney mm-hmm. right now and the climate of um, their focus. I mean, just look at the properties that they acquire every every week now. Um, it's all about, mm-hmm. you know, familiarity and, but I, and I, I think that not only from a creative side, which it's, it's, you know, fascinating from here for me to hear this from an, a former imagineer of, you know, what is it like working with constraints versus what is it like working with, um, working without, because both of those things can probably be helpful in their own right. You know, having a blank slate versus mm-hmm. having some Absolutely. boundaries. Um, but on, just on top of that, um, having, uh, all having to work, um, you know, with these with these IPs and just having all these announcements, it just seems to um, uh, with all the with all the new things coming, it's nice to every once in a while just have something new that creates its own property. Like soon, uh, movies are going to be taking over. I mean, given that Pirates of the Caribbean is the only successful uh, film franchise created out of a Disney attraction um, that I can think of. Mm-hmm. I, I mean. Country Bears was tried, mm-hmm. and They've so they tried a few there. others. But yeah, and Jungle no. Cruise is about to be tried out. I'm sure you saw that trailer, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so we'll see if that, we'll see if that pans out. But that,
0: that that may that may have a chance in the yeah. same way that Pirates, in a sense, had a chance, um, because the. Uh... Yeah, it 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 offers. I think there's a variety of reasons why it has the potential to become very successful. So we'll see. Yeah,
1: I just I, um, I think it. Well, for one, I th- I think it. Well, starring the Rock. So there you go immediate good idea. Yeah, no, there you go. Um but but also just, you know, just the just the vibe of adventure and, you know, big epic just lends itself better to film when you're translating that than, you know, the country bears does. Although I love that attraction. Um but but, mm-hmm. but speaking mm-hmm. of IP, um and I'm I just want to ask one more point of your career and then I'm going to beg you uh to come back so we can talk about, you know, the next 15 years and honey, I shrunk the audience cuz that also I want to hear about that as I do that video someday. Um I, mm. I do want to ask you about a video that I just did. And I mentioned this over a Twitter message, um, is that uh, we just did a long video on Disney's America, which is a, mm. which was of course the theme park that was supposed to be built in Virginia <laughs> that had no IP besides American history. Um, and you, you worked under uh, Bob wise. Is that
0: correct? On this project. I did. I mean, Bob, Bob was the, the head of that project. And I, um, I did spend quite a lot of time with Bob. Yes. So I, I really just want to, you know, from the creative side, I mean,
1: you know, I, 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 talked on and on about, you know, the, the development from a business perspective and, you know, of course the eventual failure of that struggle between, uh, the company and Eisner and historians, but the thing that, uh, is, you know, very critically under reported on and under discussed is the actual creative development of the park. And, What's interesting even more so is that Disney released a ton of materials on the concept art, which they usually don't do. Um, mm-hmm. And so they, I mean, they, like as far even full on descriptions of every single plan that that, that packet to the shareholders. So from your perspective, is there anything missing? Was there any concepts that, um, you know, haven't been discussed or anything that you remember or just, you know, just tell me about your development and maybe some of the, the attractions you thought would work. Would, I mean, it's really just a, what was your involvement and yeah. what was your thoughts on that project?
0: Well, my thoughts on the project were that it's it, it started off with uh, at least one arm and one leg and maybe more of its appendages tied behind its back before it got started. <laughs> um, and I think that was some of, of what led to its demise. And there's a whole another story to be told because I ended up... Um, Uh, as you mentioned, working on Disney's America. Then when Bob actually left Imagineering, um, there were several other um, opportunities, um, some of which I brought Bob back um, through his design company to work with me on. I think both of us and a number of other Imagineers felt very strongly and still feel very strongly that Disney has a place in Washington um, for the tourist and for the American guest. Um, and an opportunity to bring certain of our uh, abilities, Disney's abilities, to storytelling and to the story of history. And um, But the hands tied behind and legs tied behind the back was that fundamentally, um, the, the part of the demise of this, if not a great deal of the demise of this, happened for two reasons. The first reason was... Um, Acquiring land in any place other than in the middle of nowhere, like a swamp in um, Florida, um, and, yeah, <laughs> uh, causes people um, in the surrounding areas to have heartburn, particularly when it's something as as um, as ambitious and as um, you know ultimately potentially as popular as anything that Disney does. So, so one of the things that I think sent this into into a, um, a never never not even having the opportunity to be anything other than a defunct idea um, was um, that because there was such concern and also the concern of, of acquiring land they were acquiring land like they did in Florida long ago, um, uh, particularly in the area that they were looking at near Manassas there. Um, it was not one big parcel. It was a pretty good-sized parcel, but then they had some other parcels to get, And so you don't go in and announce your Disney, or you can forget trying to buy the land. So it was highly secretive. And um, the development of the whole project, in Michael's mind, uh, Eisner's, um, was that it had to be kept quiet until... They'd acquired all the land, and they were really, you know, they'd gotten all the regulations with the government. They'd done all this kind of stuff, and they were ready to sort of say, "Okay, we're doing it." Well, that's great, except for one thing. When you're doing history, and you're doing culture, um, we all who came in and worked on EPCOT were taught and learned the Disney way back and long in those days, which goes back even before EPCOT to you know, Ward Kimball working on on the early um, cartoons about, you know, Disney characters in space and the whole Tomorrowland and Mission to Mars and working with Lily von Braun and so forth. The tradition of doing anything that is about history, culture, or anything else is you bring in people who know the stories, who know the subject matter. and And our job as Imagineers is to is to come to sort of dig into that and pull out a particular story that we think makes sense and can be delivered, but it's derived from people who are experts, derived from people who know the subject, and they know the pitfalls, and they know all that kind of stuff. And we did that with American Adventure, the pavilion. We did that with Hall of Presidents. We, you know, There was a history in the company of knowing how to do it all the Epcot projects that were, whether it was transportation or energy or whatever, um, you know, uh, the land pavilion. So suddenly, nobody in the creative group could talk to anybody outside the creative group, even in Imagineering, let alone anybody in the real world about this project or about the stories or about anything. And so um, I think part of the failure was none of the things, it may have met Michael's sort of, oh, I think that's a good idea or whatever, but it was never vetted. So what happened is that when they presented the initial concepts for the park, there was a huge uproar because it was, was poorly presented in some ways. And it really, a lot of what was in it was like, should never have been presented. And, but what happened is that it brought an outcry instantly. And the outcry was twofold. The outcry came partially from the historical community, uh, rightfully so. And it also came from people who owned land, rich landowners around this park. And the rich landowners didn't want this park there for a variety of other reasons. So they realized that there was this outcry publicly with some key major American historians and others. So they got together and it became... Basically, um, a, 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 an effort which ultimately succeeded for one other particularly um, sad reason, which was that, that Wells passed away in the middle of all of this. And Wells was trying to deal with a lot of coming out from underneath all of this, um, these issues um, before he passed away, and we were beginning to be, be somewhat successful with that. And we were at a certain point in redesign, and we'd actually, you know, as soon as we did, we were able to talk about it, and we received this instantaneous criticism. I mean, there were people on CNN the night that it was announced, historians saying, "Oh, this is the worst thing ever." And we actually, Bob and I were in Washington at the time of all of that, obviously, and we watched this one piece, and there was this one um, um, black uh, history professor from George Washington University. Uh, a a professor of American history. And he was quite eloquent, actually, in what he had to say. So I was sitting there with Bob and I said, we should call this guy. (laughs) Now that we can talk about this, what the heck? So we actually did. And we met with him the next day. His name was um, and is Dr. James Horton. And we had a great conversation and it's it built a relationship. And he became one of our first advisors um, and was very public about about his choice in the midst of a lot of other historians who didn't want anything to do with this project. So he sort of put himself in a in a, you know, a unique position in his own community, um, but he wanted to help us. And so um, there was a lot of, of reworking of the concept. There was the continued issues with land and continued issues with a bunch of other things and this overarching pressure by a group of people who wanted to th- see this project go away. In their neighborhood and like i say the the sort of coup de gras was because we'd gone through it was like 90 part of part of when we were i was trying to remember what i'd done from 89 to 94 was this (laughs) that's Um, what i was gonna ask i was gonna ask i was like was it disney's america (laughs) And, and, and uh and we actually um i think there was a big earthquake here in california in 94 and I remember um, that we had a big presentation and a big working session with Michael and Frank on this project, and I, I somehow figured out, because where I live was cut off from the rest of Los Angeles, but I somehow figured out how to get out of here um, Short, I mean, a few days after the earthquake to have this meeting. And so Frank was still alive, but that fall was when he died. And... So there was a lot of transitorial stuff going on in a very positive way. Then Frank died. That altered Michael's personality and really took away, because Frank was doing a huge amount of the work behind the scenes um, with a number of other individuals to sort of, you know, grease and, and placate and build relationships and so forth and so on. So all of that was sort of in the background. And I think finally then when Frank passed away, And Frank had been such a uh, champion of this project with Michael that when Michael lost that, he just realized he couldn't do it because there was a lot more to be done. And so it sort of dropped away, and ultimately, they decided not to do it. But the desire to continue to do something in Washington never went away, and we had conversations with Michael about that. And I think there there were at least three other times where we did work um, Bob came back in and worked on, on one of them. Another one, I, I, I hired him as a consultant. Um, and I think the third one may have been without him. Um, but we did a variety of different kinds of things. And quite honestly, one of them sort of sidebar again. I think um, the building that is now the Trump Hotel, which is in what was the old post office building in Washington on on the avenue pennsylvania avenue we looked at that building um, specifically at one point for one of several concepts we had for doing different kinds of things in washington there was also several different times we looked at a project that is uh, in existence now not in the form that it might have been but um, seriously looked with the developer at national harbor Um, that one was publicly talked about um, for a while and um, several other sort of locations there. So, um, yeah, um, I think there is, there is ultimately, I mean, it's again, it's, it is not low-hanging fruit to do something appropriately, whether you're Disney or somebody else, um, when you're dealing with um, um, American culture and you're dealing with American history, it requires a lot of investment uh, in time and energy. Um, uh, to do it right. And it is um, a subject that also, you know, if you make a bad movie, people are up sort of sad for a moment, maybe because they hoped it would be good, but nobody really um, cares. <laughs> you know, the public doesn't care. They'll come back to the next Disney movie. Um, but to to, to to do this subject wrong um, can have huge uh, issues, so that's why I think you know Michael was tenacious enough and and interested enough. Um, I don't think the current administration of the company sees it as a priority. I think they're probably equally intrigued by it in some ways, but I don't. I mean, it's, it will require the, the, a certain kind of leadership in the company at some point in time, um, perhaps, where something like this will come back again.
1: And. I, I do want to ask one more question. And again, thank you for giving me so much of your time tonight. I do want to ask one question about mm-hmm. Disney's America is that, you know, you, you did work on these concepts and I do realize that it, it was over 20 years ago. Um, but if you can pinpoint one or two attractions or pavilions or I guess like what it was called, was not was it pavilions? It was territories. Right. So, if you if you could pinpoint some of these, well, it
0: was yeah. yeah. I think probably the one that had the, the that had all of us in an internally incredibly um, excited mm-hmm. had to do with the story of the common soldier, and um, it, considering technology today versus what technology was back then. Um, there was a lot of ambitious technology um, being considered to try and help tell this story. Um, and it was also... Um, the, the, the story was beyond just a treatment. It was well into an early sort of script. It was probably... Um, I mean, there was a lot of other fun stuff and everything, but that one was probably the one... That comes to mind as um something that i think would have could have been and probably would have been quite extraordinary had we been able to realize it and uh and um, this was was this to go in the civil war fort
1: was that where that one was do you remember or is this just like i a, think so a floating concept but again of.
0: we re sort of we sort of yeah i i believe that's ultimately i mean i i i know that we reformatted the park (laughs) itself um and um it may have been that it was an incantation that actually kept being developed as we looked at these other properties beyond the original property but i do know that somewhere in the 90s there was a point where we had this amazingly well-developed story to tell about the common soldier
1: and this was a was it, the, do you remember it was you like, like animatronics or circle vision or
0: it was it was a um very unique um attempt at giving first person sense to a lot of the history of the common soldier okay <laughs> um
1: yeah well, that uh i'm sure some of those you know technologies came to fruition but it is unfortunate that not some of these concepts did have to be put, well, I guess not thrown away, but put on the
0: shelf for the time being, hopefully someday, maybe in a... a... Well, yeah, I think the attractions, uh, if, if anybody ever were to go back, and quite honestly, sometimes people do say, hey, let's let's go back and dig up that 15, 20-year-old idea, we'll look at it again. I think what will come out of it, technology has evolved audience sophistication is different, you know, evolved and different, all that kind of stuff. So, but I do think that, that we probed the subject um, quite a lot and came up with some, I think, some very strong themes and underlying sort of storylines that one could use to create uh, quite a, a meaningful guest, you know, um, guest experience to Washington, which is really what it was about, um, you know there was a lot of people that talked about calling it Disney's America and therefore immediately saying, well, it's the America that Disney wants to talk about by calling it Disney's America. And there's Michael on the other side of that saying, but it is Disney's America. It's what we want to talk about. Um, And it was interesting because that's sort of, you know, when, when we were all working on Disney's California, there was actually a, a period of time where we looked at bringing that whole disney's america to the property that is now where disney's california is um, because michael was so interested in still doing it And he thought well maybe if i pull it away from washington completely and i do it somewhere else and we said yeah you could do that but it's not going to have the same impact that you will have if you do something like that right um where you're you're in washington for the washington experience and fortunately ultimately good sense and we ended up with disney's california um but the name disney's california came about in somewhat sort of the same thing um you know there was a lot of discussion about originally calling it disney's california
1: oh right and then and
0: it became disney's california adventure <laughs> in part for the same discussion that we'd had about disney's america right because that
1: one eventually was yeah. kind of somewhat titled disney's american celebration after the backlash right Mm right yeah and so that's and that's just so fascinating the whole disney's america you know story and i'm sure and i'm sure this i mean this is a what's interesting also um is that this is such a small portion of your long career but there's so much depth to it given the new market for people that are interested in this type of um these type of stories and these type of uh, a this type of history you know i mean the the market's always been there but Mm -hmm. just a uh, we're all starting to gravitate towards um, my channel, which is great, and other channels too. There's plenty of, of these podcasts and channels, and so it's we have a larger audience, and so it's almost it's almost um, I, I can't imagine what it's like for you. I'm sure you're uh, just getting asked, like, "Hey, remember that thing that happened 20 years ago? Can you get super specific on what your favorite attraction on this thing that never happened was?" <laughs> um, but I do appreciate you giving me so much of your time tonight, and letting, letting me. Uh, poke you with those kind of questions so uh, Rick thank you so much for being here and I hope uh, you might you might come back on the podcast sometime to talk about the uh, I guess the second half of the Eisner tenure and a little bit of, before your retirement and, uh, and your contracting
0: yeah no I would love to I mean there are many other attractions that I've had had the opportunity to be a part of um, including things like Soren and um, which I'm still doing outside of Disney it's become sort of my one I mean uh, love is being able to explore um, uh, other places in the world and other cultures in the world from the air. So um, that's the gift, I guess. That having having been able to develop Soren originally at Disney gave gave fruit to uh, to an opportunity I continue to do outside of Disney.
1: Well, that I mean, I again, these are the, all the kind of things that I. I mean, you're going to get me talking for hours, but I, I really hope you'll you might you'll come on again sometime and we can we can talk about all those attractions and we didn't get to t- i mean so many things i right? um but we also got to talk about so much of your career so again just rick thank you so much for being on today
0: very good thank you thank you for having me
1: and to everyone listening thank you for listening don't forget to rate review and subscribe to the podcast and thank you for visiting Defunctland.